We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. How did becoming a parent change you? How did you cope with the giant leap into the unknown? If you're a new parent, you're probably too sleep-deprived to begin to think about these questions. And even if your children are older, I doubt that you've stopped and really drilled down into this important transition in your life. Fortunately, there are people who go through thresholds with their eyes and their hearts open. They're called poets, and it's why I like having them on my podcast. My witness today is Jack Underwood, who is a senior lecturer in creative writing at Goldsmith College. And we're going to be discussing two of his books, A Year in the Life, which is his latest collection of poems, and Not Even This, which is a non-fiction meditation on being a father, philosophy and the power of words. Four years ago, you were trying to write a book about uncertainty. How did it turn into something addressed to your daughter, Nancy? Uncertainty is a really big subject. And I think the sort of entropy that it introduces when you start to think of one corner of it, you immediately start realizing that it's a never-ending sort of subject because it's a, it's a constant feature of our lives. And writing about it in, a, in that sort of more abstract way, it was nice to be able to kind of explore and, and, and pick up the different kinds of uncertainties that I found through research or just out of interest, really. But I, but I think perhaps what becoming a parent did was almost provide that center of gravity. Yeah, it found, a, it found a focus for all those kind of questions, partly because when you're watching somebody start out from the very beginning of their life, you can see how certainties, certain certainties form and how sort of fragile they are. And you can also see how, how dwarfed we are by uncertainty compared to what we think we might know. So probably what I've ended up with is is a far more intimate book than I imagined writing. But I think it's perhaps more honest for it and more relatable for people. And <laughs> it's probably less uh, nebulous and wandering than, than the original book was going to be. And you sort of looked down at this creature and sort of realised that she was sort of unsolvable. And I think for a lot of people that would be terrifying, but I think it's a little less terrifying for a poet. Am I right in thinking that? Well, yeah, particularly a poet who spent a lot of time reading kind of the philosophies of language and who kind of is very at home with the void and <laughs> and the kind of brinkmanship of thinking and talking and, and writing around that that big question of uncertainty or, or the unknown or the unknowable, I think, even more um, than the uncertain. Um, maybe the uncertain is kind of our, our answer to the unknowable. And poetry certainly is, for me, a, a, a kind of form of language which acknowledges the kind of fragility of our knowledge claims. It's a kind of uncertain knowledge form. So when you were given your daughter, you write, there should have been more paperwork. We signed a form or two, and then they sort of let us take you away, a human baby. Tell us about that moment. 
Yeah, I suppose you when you're thinking of having a child, your mind is so centered on on the birth and the risk of that and the sort of meeting this new person. I suppose that's that presents itself as this seemingly discrete moment in time, this event and you you're you're looking forward to it as a kind of like flagpole in the distance, a kind of boy. Well, the reality is that it's not an event. It's the beginning of a series of other events. And the magnitude of that first meeting is really just kind of carried through um, rather unrelentingly. And yeah, you, you get home and you get home and then you're like, now what? You know, because you've kind of built up for this, for this moment and the moment's ongoing. And yeah, I've, I've, I'm not, I don't like, I, I absolutely hate paperwork. So it's an odd fantasy, but I think maybe what I mean there is that we're, we're used to being regulated more when it comes to serious things. I mean, if you think about the amount of kind of paperwork there is with just a kind of mortgage or a debt or... Or getting a car, for example. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I suppose those are, you know, the yeah, the kinds of insurance and stuff like that. All that kind of language um, is there to kind of protect you in a way, to it kind of ins- to shore up the possible realities that you might be facing, the, the catastrophic and the banal. And suddenly you're kind of left there to entertain the catastrophic and the banal, often sort of simultaneously in your imagination. The kinds of certainties that we rely on in modern life are often kind of litigation, policy. They're, they're written, they're legal, which is, of course, the entirely opposite kind of language to poetry, a language that's designed to kind of finish and end and secure things. And this sort of immortality of having children that's been stretching back forever. So, in a sense, this has been established before the days of paperwork and the attempt of our modern world to have certainty that if you sign seven times for the car leasing agreement and you send the paper off here and you get another thing from there, that somehow it makes it more solid. Whereas having children, because it's been done for generations and generations before, mm. is a sort of pre that experience. And so the modern world and the immortal world almost sort of clash together at that moment. Yeah, I think that because we think of having children as this kind of very organic process, we imagine that an organic process can be cleaved from the cultural situation that it's in, perhaps, or that it sort of somehow transcends the cultural specifics of it, which is quite unlike anything else, really, perhaps like death or something. I also don't think that's true. If anything, you're bringing a child into a very culturally specific kind of moment and that that that's it's a false binary between you know nature and culture so the, the 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 appearance of this transcendental organic thing that you're supposed to be used to and um or that you're supposed to be ready for or that's the most natural thing in the world is of course a lie <laughs> it's very like culturally situated and all the all the pressures of your cultural situation enact and exact themselves upon you and your child from the moment you know, you get home and where you get home and whether you've had to pay for the hospital where you are in the world, whether that child has had a medical check, you know, all these things are, are, are working away. Six months after your daughter was born, you started having panic attacks. How did they manifest in you? I suppose sleep deprivation is kind of a big part of it. Or maybe it's just the anxiety of 
of a child's vulnerability and this kind of vigilance that you build build up that really I found that all my nervous activity was suddenly redirected away from my own kind of egocentrism in the world and sort of funneled off and that that nervous energy that that created a kind of profound sense of loss of control I think and and also the the sheer novelty of that I mean imagining terrible things happening to your child is one thing but also being aware that suddenly you are an instrument in its safekeeping I mean fantasizing about the things that you would do being sort of ready to jump into an icy lake or plunge your hand into some machinery or something you know whatever dark kind of manifestations they take in the imagination but that that's not too far away from sort of suicidation in terms of it's you know really what you're doing there is you're kind of you're you're making yourself less important and you're and you're doing that all the time and i think it's the, which which is bound to kind of cause a sort of a, a, a spiraling sense of loss of control and if you're awake at night and you can't get back to sleep i i found that actually around sort of 6 months was when Nancy was able to go back to sleep again and sleep through the night but somehow the period and the patterns of being up all the time meant that i wasn't and you have a lot of time then in the middle of the night to kind of sit there with your heart racing wondering about why that is and yeah it's in those i suppose i sort of just thought i was going to have a heart attack a lot of the time or or just this enormous sense of dread or loss of control over I just need to sort of pace around a room, really. Almost like an excess of energy, an excess of pent-up stress with no real like vehicle for relieving it, apart from writing, which which I found did kind of calm me down and, and was a kind of decompressing mechanism, maybe. So that feels like a very good invitation for us to actually hear a little bit of this book. It sort of prompted this excerpt we're going to have, from your daughter crying, which you describe as a bit like an alarm going off. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in. God, that cry, like a pulled tooth held into the air. It would jolt my chest into a gallop, a shooting pain, a full body wince. Often I would wake to find myself already out of bed, cot-side, reaching down towards it in the dark, my mind a house fire of scrambled sleep and sound. Such relief when you fell quiet again. There was no peace like your closed, intent sleep, a sleep precisely as heavy as you were in our arms. But I carry that cry in my memory like the tenderness beneath a scar. Even now at night, your voice finds me like a current down a wire, and I am stepping straight from my dream into your room, my t-shirt somehow on, though inside out, the rescue already underway, preceding thought and consciousness. Then there were the moments when you were awake and alert and calm, and those were our meeting place. What are you doing? I'd whisper to you, your hands grabbing at the air, the way a person might clench their fist after putting on a glove. Sometimes I'd help you locate my index finger, so together we could test your grip and gauge how real you were. Close encounters, the room tightening with these bold reassurances of our presence to one another. 
That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Now, the title of the collection that this comes from is called Not Even This, which is part of a longer quote from the ancient philosopher Carnides of Lyrene. And the quote is, nothing can be known, not even this. Why did this quote speak to you so strongly? I hadn't really done much research into sort of pre-Socratic skeptic philosophy um, before I started writing the book. And I was sort of struck actually by how ancient really this kind of understanding of the limits of the human mind, the the understanding that the, the human mind is fundamentally limited in the way that it can encounter reality. And I suppose it's, it shouldn't be surprising given that we haven't really ever moved on from those kind of fundamental limits. Nothing can be known, not even this. It's a nice paradox. You know, it's kind of poetic. It's using language against itself. And I think that was kind of like pleasing. I think where I would disagree now with that is that I kind of, the difference between truth and knowledge is something that I've kind of found a way out of this puzzle that that knowledge if 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 you just kind of take knowledge to be what's knowable and not what's true then something things can be known lots of things can be known people can be known to us according to the terms we set for knowledge so things can be known so i kind of disagree with it but i suppose the not even this part was just kind of a way of indicating that the book itself is kind of provisional or or it's only an offering that I know what I think I know, but even this. But is, but is that the truth? Yeah. It, well, I don't. I, I. I don't think. I think the, the truth is a kind of category outside human knowledge. Um, I don't think we can ever know the truth. I think they're they're kind of irreparably cleaved. There's there's a there's something called the epistemological gap, which is essentially saying that, that there's a finite limit on knowledge, and it's set by the the human mind and its neurology it's where it is and located in the in the universe our sensorial limits all those kind of things are, are fundamental and and we just get quicker and quicker at, at processing things but i don't think the the speed of the processing as we know now that we have email rather than letters it doesn't it doesn't sort of change the nature of the information we send it just just changes the kind of speed of its arrival and and the character of its arrival and 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 its and, and and how we're supposed to respond to it, I think. So you were pleased to have a daughter rather than a son. Tell me why. Yeah, that's a big question. I think partly because I felt I've, I've had a difficult relationship with kind of traditional masculinity. I don't necessarily feel entirely at home as a shepherd through that. That kind of well, if it's a shepherd, I suppose it's. <laughs> It's, it's through that, like... Through the mountainside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Through the mountains and down the valleys and through the woods. Exactly, I'm not sure. Yeah, wherever shepherds go. But I, I, I didn't feel entirely confident that I could, that I was up to it, really. Or, or I felt un- unhappy being a kind of a representative, an envoy for whatever cachet of associations or ideals or expectations that that was supposed to involve. Maybe that's why also I, I like the idea of being able to sort of indulge in behaviours which, you know, in femininity more, that being a father to a daughter, I could, yeah, I could just kind of relax into myself a bit more and meet her kind of halfway. 
I don't know if that reality is entirely kind of, that was a fear more than something that I think when people arrive, you're struck really not so much by gender as this thing that's already there, but something that kind of emerges and disappears constantly, you know. Because I, I love the image that you give in the book. You say that rooms full of men are filled with fear. Mm. Yeah, I do feel that, actually. Maybe I feel that partly because I've tried to avoid them. <laughs> I am, I suppose, like, the closest I've come in recent years is, like, being part of a cricket team or something. And those are very nice, gentle, <laughs> gentle. Like, those actually started off as a writer's cricket team. So we weren't especially good at cricket, but we were, it was a nicer environment. But, yeah, I mean, I just remember the kind of high school and the masculine domains and pubs when the football's on or something like that. And I go to those environments and the kind of laddish sort of terrace, like the performance really of, of, of kind of, of masculinity. And it's even when it's kind of being tender and close and boisterous and, and that kind of language of, of intimacy that sometimes sort of hyper-masculine areas have, you know, when your team scores and suddenly you're, you know, hugging a stranger next to you or when you're weeping when we lose another penalty shootout on the shoulder of somebody you only met 20 minutes ago. I don't know, those seem quite rare. And I just think that, well, I mean, we still are, you know, statistically more likely to murder one another than women, although that's sort of often a red herring in, 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 and a distraction from the real problem of male violence. But I think we're aware of male violence, you know, just because we're also men, it doesn't mean that we're not subject to that kind of threat and we perceive it in ourselves in in our sort of in our more aggressive like parts of ourselves our anger but we also perceive it in the threat and the unpredictability of others you know yeah i think i think it's 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 worrying and um i think we should be talking about that more that we're that that yeah under underwriting it all is this idea i mean we, we've grown we, we've shown all these these films and images of men fighting growing up like that's a normal thing to do, you know. It's not the Middle Ages, you know. It's against the law to to push someone, you know. And and people are serving sentences for hitting people right now. And yet, underlying nearly every kind of interaction with other men, there is the, you know, particularly if there's a disagreement, there's this kind of like, how far are we going to go here, you know? And 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 this it's almost kind of phantom. This 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 mythology underwriting it that that at any moment we could be. Um, summoning one another to a duel or a fight to the death, and of course people do that. People are still are still fighting one another to the death. You know, it hasn't gone away, and 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 so it's so it, it's both a kind of imagined threat in in more benign interactions somewhere in the subtext, but it's also a reality, um, and there's a reason why it's it's still there that we also need to talk about. So fatherhood made you think about your own father. So tell me about the not catching you game. <laughs> yeah, he's not very um, happy about me telling everyone what a what a meanie he is. Really, though, I actually think it was a really fantastic kind of life lesson and thinking about dad and his. So, how does the game work? The, <laughs> the game works really where you um, where we would stand on something. If, you know, we grew up in Norfolk in the countryside, and so often we'd go on a walk or something, there'd be a log. And of course, as a child, you climb on the log and you stick your hands up to jump off it. And he would say, go on then, come on, I'll catch you. And we knew, we knew that he, that he wouldn't, that he would back away. 
<laughs> as soon as we jumped. <laughs> and we would, you know, if it was safe, I think there was a certain amount of him gauging what was a respectable. I mean, probably, we probably wouldn't be up on the log if it was too high. And then, yes, he would always back away. And the stairs, you know, the bottom of the stairs, or any kind of like slightly elevated thing where we, where we wanted to jump off and be caught. Nancy does this to me all the time now. She wants to jump off and be caught. I think there's a sort of, I don't know um, if there's some kind of psychological reason why we, you know, if that's a sort of symbolic or something. But I think he was kind of partly joking. It's just a kind of joke, you know. It's also partly don't trust. Don't, don't trust anyone. I don't know. No, I don't think it's, it was trying to implant this um, inherent suspicion about people. I think it was mainly a joke. But I think also this idea of, of falling, it, it's a fan, maybe it's a, it's a slightly fanciful poetic conceit for me. It's, a ready, it's one of those ready-made conceits that you can see and you think, well, that's a bit like poetry, these kind of leaps into and, and knowing that you're not going to be caught I could lie, couldn't I, and say that the reason that I'm a poet is because my father let me. Your father never caught you. Yeah, yeah, that, I, that I'm used to these leaps, but I think that would probably be, yeah, a lie. <laughs> but it's a nice image. Will you, will you play the game with your daughter? I don't know, you know. I mean, maybe now. She's four now, so she's a bit more robust. I think it's probably a bit brutal for a toddler. So... <laughs> <laughs> There are hundreds of versions of this game, of course, which is like a child asks you to do something. You say, okay, I'll do it. And then, then you don't do it. You do the opposite. You, with, you withhold something. Or it's like pulling your hand away, offering a hand to shake and then put, withdrawing it. Or doing the, um, what is it? Um, give me five on the side, up above, down below, you're too slow. These kind of like little tricks. And I think they're good because they teach children sort of to be on the receiving end of a joke and not not find that too distressing. I think they're really important. To, they're probably quite good um, training exercises in being robust enough to be a good human who can laugh at themselves and and take as well as as, as dish it out. So, yeah, I, I probably will do versions of that. And now that she's a bit bigger, I might reintroduce it as a family tradition. <laughs> I think it's probably time to have another poem. The next thing I've chosen, this is something from your collection, A Year in the New Life, and it's called Fifteen Babies in My Garden. I assume that there really were 15 babies in your garden at one point. No, no, no. I mean, this is, um, I think, I don't think it ruins the poem at all or, or, or damages it to give a little context about the idea, I think, which is that you have a baby and then you get used to handling that one, and then it suddenly becomes another baby with different needs. And oh. around about six months, you have to start feeding it solid food, and it could choke at any moment on a, you know, and it does choke. <laughs> they do like to have a little choke just to, you know. So there are different dangers and worries and and kinds of care, and you suddenly realise that you're never going to get the hang of this. Not going to have to adapt and and change your understanding of what parenthood is. Oh, thank you for sharing that. It deepens the poem. Perhaps you'd like to read it now for us. Fifteen babies in my garden, each at a different stage in their development, including a fully grown adult baby, all of them sitting around or lying 
or trying to turn over onto their fronts or back onto their backs. The sunshine apple-scented, the still trees monastic as I carry a large tray of drinks out to them, different milks in different bottles I've sterilized, and for the adult baby, an old-fashioned in a tumbler, orange peel suspended in amber, a black cherry blot. Here you go, babies, I say, and they coo and squirm and gripe and sleep regress. What are you guys talking about, I ask, and the adult baby being the best speaker among them and therefore, I suppose, their designated spokesperson replies, we were just talking about the ruinous and beautiful ways we're going to break your dumb old heart and totally fuck your life up. And they all start laughing. (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is just beautiful (laughs) just beautiful you write about the rush for nancy to have language you say i want you to meet me here where the words are how did having words change your relationship with her oh massively i think as much as i know that language is this very reductive tool really that it's it's a kind of cookie cutter it, it renders the world into these false categories and makes it seem this manageable, much clearer version than the reality, which is really a kind of strange hallucination that our senses update. And we, so I, I was kind of being intimate with somebody that didn't have language for the first time. It was frustrating because it, it was almost like they weren't present. She wasn't present in the same way that I was present. Um, but I was also scared or kind of almost resentful of, of how language would impress those categories onto her. But of course, without those categories, you can't know each other. So the truth is the confusion, but the knowledge, knowing one another involves these kind of this shorthand. I think she was very good at speaking. She's, she was speaking quite early in very has a sort of very darling kind of clear voice early on. And that was fun, you know. And I think, yeah, even just things like her saying, I love you for the first time, or just calling me daddy, you know, these are kind of, and and knowing that the concept for her was kind of understood. Suddenly you kind of, it it does two things. One, it it brings them into the present with you in language and and you you feel like you can share these ideas in a more exacting and precise way that makes them feel suddenly very present. The other is that you realise how little sense of their interior life you have. The irony, I think, is that in meeting them in language, you also suddenly realise the magnitude of of what you're not meeting of their interior lives, which is entirely theirs and how far away they are from you, even in in spite of this new kind of closeness. And you write about when she was 19 or 20 months old, you make her a a chocolate milkshake, which is rather cheating in your family, which is almond milk with a teaspoon of cocoa powder. She's going to find you out one day. (laughs) And you write, for the first time unprompted, as a thought occurring for the first time in your own unfathomable head, a shimmer of electricity finding a route through your brain, landing in the place where words arrive. You said, I love you, Daddy. Mm. How wonderful to actually capture that moment. 
So when did you feel that she would survive without your interventions? Because that was one of the things that was really driving your panic attacks and your fear. I think you never really, the, tr- the trust is, is so much harder, but it's also impossible. You know, you can't be vigilant. You know, you houseproof or whatever it is, danger proof your house for a toddler. But, you know, they go out into the world and, well, also I kind of heard her curiosity quite quickly outgrew my ability to keep the world safe and to always be vigilant. You know, as soon as she's on a scooter, she's off, you know, and yeah, I have to run to keep her. And, and it's, it's totally unsustainable, that kind of level of fear and anxiety and, and, and that need to, to be protective. And I, I had to train myself to do it. And I still, still, I'm not as good at that trust as um, my partner is. I, I also realized, perhaps I realized that, that the more I try and curtail her, her interaction with the world, the more like determinedly she's going to resist it. And I've got one eye on her being 16 and <laughs> in the future and, and how little control I'll, I'll have then. And yeah, I, I don't want her to, to feel like I want to keep her away from the world. I want to focus on empowering her to to interact with confidence and, and wisdom, which she seems to be getting more of every day. So how has fatherhood changed you? It's hard to say. I, I mean, the book being called A Year in the New Life, the new life is that kind of breaching, really. It's hard to say how. There's certainly a, a kind of, there's, there's, there seems to be this, this um, slightly faddish use of the word main character. I've heard, are you the main character in your life? (laughs) And I think that kind of goes, I think you suddenly feel like you're a supporting actor or or that so much of your time is is, is spent in that role that you don't have as much time to indulge your kind of more egocentric habits and interests, at least initially, because you get more and more time sort of return to that version of yourself. So it's hard to say. I mean, she's only four. So I would say that it's changed me in that it's forced me to confront what I can control and what I can't more about my life. It's made me full of kind of worries and nervous energy and anxious energy, but often directed outside of myself. I mean, one thing that I think a lot of people pick up, pick up on the book is that I don't believe that parenthood makes you a better person. I feel like you have less energy actually to, to give out into the world more indiscriminately, you know, in a good way. Your So much of your energy has to be turned inwards suddenly towards your family, um, which of course like installs and in like a deeper kind of sense of ethics and moral, morality, you know, about what you're teaching your child and what you believe. But it also gives you less time and energy for that task in an outward way. Uh, so lots of the kind of things that I would do for other people, I, I can't do so much anymore. I mean, they, these seem very banal, kind of like small scale things. But the truth is, I can't remember really what it was like before. It feels like it's a new life. It, I, I, can't, I can't really remember. But I know that it was different and I know that it was more self-involved. But not being self-involved hasn't made me a better person, if 
that makes sense. So let's actually finish with another selection from A Year in the New Life. This one is a, uh, I won't, I think we should just get you to read it actually. It's called (laughs) This Time. This time, it's going to be great, God called out to his wife. I know I've said it before, but I think I'm really onto something. I'm going to give them a linear sense of time, just one direction, all the way. What? Miss God replied, arriving in the doorway where the garage meets the utility room adjoining the kitchen. But that's hardly anything at all, she said, bemused, placing one of two plates with neatly cut sandwiches, each with a pile of assorted accompanying pickles, down on the workbench. I know, but that way they'll have beginnings and endings. Think how dramatic that will be. They'll need neat little bodies to inhabit, perhaps starting off small and new, then growing larger, then more prone to malfunction until they fail and each of them disappears down the chute. Whoosh! I know it seems like a brutal constraint, but it'll create pressure, dynamism. I mean, think how many of them will never meet. Lovers kept a thousand years apart by a cruel lottery of ordering and the great meandering conversations, stratified, strung out across the epochs, new voices, inflections, accents, and terminologies joining all the time, just as the older voices and languages slide from memory, one gigantic melting block of ice that none will ever even see a corner of. Just imagine the intensity of that narrowed, sharpened experience. What a trip. God, grabbed the sandwich and chewed madly, scrutinising the sketches he had made. They'll be popping off like champagne bottles. They'll be out of their tiny minds. Mrs. God rolled her eyes, taking her identical sandwich and pickle assortment back indoors, where the afternoon stretched like a cat between naps. (laughs) (laughs) It is so true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's one of the things that kind of a linear sense of time, it kind of, it's doing everything, isn't it really? Or, or at least one direction. I think that really is the kicker, isn't it? The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits so one of the advantages of being a supporter of the meaningful life is you can write in a question to us to have discussed by me and my witnesses and here is one written to us by a man I'm facing a big question, in fact, two big questions, but the second follows on from the first. Do I want to have children? I'm pretty certain the answer is no. I've never been interested. Even as a child myself, I thought, I don't want to be a father. The second question is, what impact will this have on my relationship? My girlfriend is pretty certain that she wants to be a mother. She is 33, so it is about time. I'm 35 and I don't feel ready or established enough. I'm freelance, so my career is very stop and start, and I can't see far enough into the future. Then there is my freedom. I like being able to do what I want to or find interesting, rather than the child coming first, which is what I see for my friends and work colleagues who are parents. My girlfriend agrees that life is great now, but she's an optimist 
who thinks we will cope and nobody knows the future. I suppose I'm a bit of a pessimist. So I want to say no to children, and if I do, will my girlfriend resent me? And if I say yes, will I resent her? We both want to please the other, so our conversation goes round in circles. What are your thoughts from uh, the other side in this new life of yours? Yeah, I found this um, very um, difficult to consider, really. I mean, I'm, I'm used to kind of giving people advice on line breaks and poems and things like that, but this felt like a whole other kind of... Uh... What I would say about the, the idea of kind of resentment, it reminds me of a poem by Mary Rufel um, called The Bench, which you can find online. And in it, this couple are arguing about whether they will have a four-foot bench or a five-foot bench in their garden. And in the course of the argument, she says she would rather have no bench at all than a five-foot bench. And this becomes a third bench. And then she starts seeing this third bench everywhere in people's gardens, you know, everywhere she goes, you know, because it's, you can put it anywhere. (laughs) And to me, I suppose that the not having a child is a bit like that third bench, that it exists almost as much as the child does in terms of one's life. Maybe if you decide, if, if you want to have one and you don't. And I think I always knew that if we didn't have a child, that that kind of child would would somehow be there anyway. A sort of ghost child. Yeah, I mean, or just the kind of like a different life, you know, a new life. That's so easy to imagine. And of course, as I said, like idealizations of that kind are always harmful because they're so far from reality that even if you decide to have a child, it's not going to be what you imagined it to be. I mean, you really are. And the, the, your imagination, pre-child, of what, what the reality is like is, is <laughs> utterly fanciful, it seems to me. Like, uh, I, I mean, I sort of say this in the preface of the book. I just, as soon as I had a child, I was like, what an idiot I've been, you know. How, how, how sort of, what, what, you know, yeah, what an asshole I've been to my parents. You know, you just don't see the work. And and this you you have these initial weeks and you're just exhausted and then you realise that there's no weekend coming you know there's no this is it and 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 you I, my friend Joe Dunthorne who's a poet and novelist he he sort of said he described it as being going to a rock festival and then realising that you you can never go home again you know <laughs> you, start, you know you can't wash you know you're smelly you're tired you know it's entertaining. But it's also this sort of grueling thing. So, the, yeah, the rock festival, which you never get to leave. And, and so I suppose, yeah, the, the level of work, the enormity of that hard work, it's hard to see before you're there. And, and in terms of, like, yeah, resent, resenting it, I, I think if you have a child and you don't want one or you didn't feel like you, you didn't want one, it is not a good place for that resentment to dissipate because you you resent your you resent your child even when you wanted to have them quite a lot of the time you're like <laughs> you know and you resent you, you resent there's so much kind of resentment because it's hard you know it's difficult it's constantly difficult and and it would all and it could always been a, so much easier but you don't you don't and, reg- and the category of re- regret when you say it like that people would often say well do you regret it and you say of course i don't regret it you know 
because once a child is there also it's not something that you can imagine going back on or not having there's a sort of permanence of it which which works outside of these either or fork in the road kind of logic it's both and i think when we look at the fork in the road logic we tend to think just about the baby part which is the smelly sleepy rock mm concert sort of kind of part of it but actually it evolves it becomes a different kind of experience and we're just thinking about the first part but Mm. if you're lucky you know this is going to last 60 70 years being a parent Mm. and being a parent of a five-year-old is going to be very different from being a parent of a 15-year-old and a 50-year-old these are so many different experiences how can you actually really think about all of them you can't. It's like you say, it's like having 15 different babies. Mm. I mean, that's a beautiful image and a, a lovely way of putting it. And thank you for, <laughs> for that. So how do you get out of this sort of binary question? Because it feels like it's an unanswerable question. What do you do with unanswerable questions? I think learning, learning to live is about recognising that complexity and the dissonance and the contradiction that life always throws up, you know. For me, it's it's come in the form of understanding that through through lang- using language as a writer and, and, and teaching it, you know, theoretically at times, realising that that these kind of, the neatness of, of concepts, you know, it helps us understand the world in this abstract way, but the world itself is never abstract. And I think just coming to terms time and time again with, with difficulty and uncertainty is, is actually the reality. That's the nature. What takes the effort is the semblance, is, is the energy that, that you expend creating the semblance of order and pattern. You know, nothing's ever been, nothing's ever existed previously. You know, we're constantly in this new moment of change and, and ongoingness, of becoming constantly on this in this process and this edge of becoming so what you know what good is your memory <laughs> as a tool for the future you know it's it's pretty effective because because we can impose patterns because we can throw these patterns forward and we know that when we pick up a cup of coffee that we shouldn't you know throw it into our faces and this is the brain's efficiency it's a, it's a, it's not it's not bent it's not designed for for truth it's not designed for for rendering the fullness of reality. It's designed for reducing it efficiently for our survival. And and the more the, the sooner that we recognise the need to reclaim some of that fullness from this dulling, reductive survival mechanism, maybe that's kind of key here. That's how you do it. You you, you make room in your life for forms of language that that move, that, that move towards contradiction poetry for me is about bringing complexity within reach not explaining things away not trying to provide like stories answers it's about entertaining and framing these questions and being able to occupy these questions and that that helps me i think reconcile myself with the ways in which or maybe perhaps it widens or broadens or deepens the ways in which i can understand the neat conceptual version of my brain, uh, of the reality that my brain likes to tell me the stories about, is always going to be 
limited and always going to fail in some way. So thank you very much for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. I have to turn the spotlight on to you and ask you what makes your life meaningful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I suppose what makes my life meaningful is recognising that meaning is something, is a collaborative venture and it's an imperfect result. And meaning is this human beloved, really, that kind of we're made to make things meaningful and and meaningful things are made for us to help us understand ourselves it's it's this kind of mirror and uh, with all the kind of skewing and um, inversions and refractions that mirrors involve and maybe what makes my life meaningful is recognizing that and then and getting beyond that not not seeking this perfect unsullied objective understanding but recognizing that that i'm a kind of cognizant agent requiring verification from others and it's that that difficult brokering that trust that 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 problematic problematizing business that's what makes my life meaningful community like yeah the business of it you know The, the the hard work of 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 finding meaning and 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 knowing and and knowing making knowledge between us knowing that the truth will never will never really arrive to rescue that that process and i love the idea that it's a collaborative thing as well so thank you for that thank you for being a witness good luck with your new collection of uh, poems we'll have all the details in our show notes and also the details of the poem about the benches i think that's a uh, a lovely poem. I'd love to read that. So we'll find a link to that as well and put all, all of it in the show notes. Now, unfortunately, this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you become a member of our supporters circle, you get to hear the bonus material. You'll find out the three things that Jack knows deep down to be true. And we're going to have another poem as well. I'm going to let him choose this time round. So if you want to find out what he's chosen, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.